Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloh. Back in the 1970s, I remember hearing news stories about plans to try and tow an iceberg from polar regions to places in need of fresh water, like off the coast of Southern California, for example. But it was treated more as a flight of fancy, a whimsical notion, and not something that should be actually pursued. The icebergs would probably melt before they could even reach their warmer destination, and when you got it there, how would you go about actually harvesting the fresh water? Still, the notion lingered over the years until the past decade, when climate change-fueled droughts and freshwater shortages around the globe rekindled the idea that icebergs can be treated as a usable freshwater source. Our guest is Ohio State University Professor of Law and Environmental Humanities, Matthew Burkhold. Matthew is the author of the new book, Chasing Icebergs, How Frozen Freshwater Can Save the Planet. In his book, Burkhold chronicles the historical relationship we've had with icebergs from the Titanic disaster in 1912 to the current crop of iceberg cowboys who are attempting to corral and transport bergs to places in dire need of fresh water like South Africa. The author joined us recently to talk about his adventures learning about these intriguing floating mountains of ice, Matthew Burkhold, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks very much for having me. Before we get into the the meat of this book, what first got you interested in this topic? Because there, you're not too many people I know, uh, icebergs becomes a passion with them. How did you first get interested in this? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it really has become a, a passion. Icebergs are just such fascinating creatures. Um, it, it started by accident. Actually, my husband and I were on vacation uh, in Newfoundland, Canada, and we were wet and cold in this remote corner of the world and stumbled into a bar for a drink. And we happened to get martinis served with iceberg ice. And my mind exploded with a dozen of questions that then I've spent the last couple of years pursuing. Yeah. And so was that like your first time tasting iceberg water? It was as a tourist, you know, I fell for the tourist novelty up there in Lance's Meadows and was just completely enchanted. Uh, when iceberg ice melts, it crackles a bit like pop rocks because there's compressed air that's being released. Oh, so yeah. it kind of, you know, tickles your tongue. So it's it's a good trick. When it's cool to think about, you know, that that air coming out of there, you know, that's been trapped in there for probably millennia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Iceberg ice is hundreds of thousands of years old. That's kind of cool. So it contains, yeah, some of the purest freshwater. Um, you're thinking of a secondary market and selling pure, you know, ancient air. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, of course, the, you know, the, the subtitle of your book is How Frozen Freshwater Can Save the Planet. And, and of course, you know, the big picture here is we're facing a global shortage of freshwater, of, of drinkable freshwater around the globe. In fact, I think I saw something from the UN um, that by 2030, which is not far away at all, uh, global demand for freshwater um, will exceed what we actually have to offer by like 40%. So it's a huge issue. And yeah. your your take on this is that icebergs have the possibility to help solve some of this problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I have a slightly optimistic take for a pretty dark tale that we're entering into. And if you don't mind, I think it's it's always important to take a minute to talk about what the global water crisis looks like. So I'm, I'm talking to you sitting in Columbus, Ohio, where we're lucky enough mm -hmm. to have an abundance of really clean, great fresh water that comes out of our tap. And for 
a lot of us in the United States were really privileged to not have to think about water. And that's just not the reality for most of the world. Let me stop you right there, because where I'm sitting in Northern California, I've been dealing with a multi-year drought and worrying about my well going dry. Oh, that's right. And uh, we did get a series of nice storms this winter, which has helped alleviate things a bit. But it certainly hasn't recharged the groundwater to the extent where, you know, I don't need to worry about it anymore. So I, I can relate. Yeah, and the storms are a really nice point because we're becoming more and more dependent on sort of capricious weather to solve these problems. So, you know, three years ago, South Africa, Cape Town was going to run out of water and then luckily storms came in and they didn't have to turn off municipal taps. And as climate change intensifies, its water sources are just going to become more and more unpredictable. Well, I remember hearing about this like back in the 70s and it was kind of fanciful and, you know, like, oh, ha ha, you know, harvesting, you know, dragging icebergs to L.A. and things like that. But you actually opened the book with a very interesting um, piece on Prince Muhammad al-Faisal at Ohio State University in 1977. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what happened there. Yeah, that's right. So we had, you know, some early visionary pioneers who thought of iceberg towing as a real possibility, uh, many from the Middle East with funding. Um, so Prince Faisal organized this conference at Iowa State, brought thinkers in from all over the world, from Switzerland, from Morocco, from England, from the United States, from Australia, to solve this problem. And the conclusion was, this is the stuff of science fiction. Right. And as you said, Americans were fixated on bringing water to California. And the reality was the technology did not exist in the 1970s to manage that feat. So ever since then, it's been a joke. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of a tie into your book because it kind of reminds me of ideas about you know, raising the Titanic and fanciful things like that. Because when I think of icebergs and I think for a lot of people, the first image that comes to mind is, you know, if either the movie or for me, I read the book A Night to Remember by Walter Lord when I was a kid and the Titanic fascinated me as it did Robert Ballard and many others. But it was Frederick Fleet, you know, iceberg right ahead. And uh, so that's, you know, when I think icebergs, I think of the Titanic. Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. Iceberg, right ahead! On the starboard! And one of the really interesting things in your book that I learned was that, you know, we tend to think of the uh, Titanic as this really fluky thing that happened, um, a ship crashing into an iceberg. You know, when, when does that ever happen? And it turns out it happened a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The Titanic was the norm, not the exception. And I think we've we've forgotten that as a society, just how deadly icebergs are. Yeah, there were quite a few ships that, you know, ran afoul of icebergs. And I, I learned that from your book. That was really interesting. Yeah, right. So I in, in the book, I, I go through some of the literature that uses this trope that on both sides of the Atlantic, there were a lot of fictional accounts about un indestructible ships hitting icebergs. And you know, the, the story has been the same since the start of time. When a ship meets an iceberg, the iceberg wins. So the Titanic was just the end of that trajectory. Yeah, and and the beginning of uh, a very important um, intergovernmental body uh, that I, I found interesting to read about, the International Ice Patrol. Tell us a bit about your adventures, you know, finding out about that. Thanks for bringing this up, because I think the, the men and women, people who work at the International Ice Patrol are doing incredible work, and they are not celebrated enough. In the wake of the Titanic disaster, the international community got together to 
formed this organization now known as the International Ice Patrol to survey the North Atlantic for icebergs to keep merchant ships and passenger ships free. And since then, since 1914, no ship that's followed the International Ice Patrol's advice has hit an iceberg or sunk. Yeah, that's an amazing safety record. And it's really interesting to think about when that formed right after the Titanic disaster, because that's right before World War One, and you have all of these countries and all this international tension, and yet they cooperated to do this. Yeah, that's right. All through both world wars, the International Ice Patrol uh, was operational well into the war. People kept coordinating together because people and goods were still crossing the ocean, and the only way to keep them safe is have the International Ice Patrol tracking icebergs. And so uh, that, that brings up something interesting about warfare and icebergs, because we literally tried to commit war on icebergs to get them out of the way and blow them up and things like that, which is, I found, you know, really kind of entertaining and hilarious. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So according to the U.S. Coast Guard, icebergs are the mariner's ancient enemy. So we've been in a long battle with icebergs to try to subdue them. And, you know, the track record is basically icebergs always win. So the U.S. Coast Guard has tried to blow up icebergs with dynamite by dropping bombs, by spreading thermite on them, uh, carbon black to try to speed their melting, and icebergs are really indestructible. My favorite story, though, was there was a plan to try to use them as like natural aircraft carriers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this was this was in England. Uh, steel was such in such high demand that you know the armed forces were looking for alternatives for landing aircraft carriers in the ocean, and the idea came to them: icebergs. You know, they're enormous. They're really strong. You could certainly land an airplane on it. So why not use them as aircraft carriers? Uh, the plan was eventually scuttled when, you know, clear minds realized that icebergs twist and turn and flip over. So you would lose an airplane pretty quick. But it goes to the, my larger point that icebergs tend to make us dream, right? There's something about the glistening ice that catches our attention and invites fantasy. Ooh, and let's talk a bit about that. Uh, let's do a little Iceberg 101. Tell us, tell us about uh, your experiences, you, you know, with icebergs up close. They're, they're pretty amazing. You know, we all kind of know the trope about most of the iceberg is underwater. But give us a little quick Iceberg 101. Yeah, well, so the, I've learned a lot of people don't know that icebergs are freshwater. So two-thirds of freshwater on Earth are locked away in the polar regions, in ice caps and glaciers. And these glaciers calve icebergs and send them into the ocean. So that's what we're used to. So they're actually these really nice, tidy parcels of freshwater that, from my perspective, are beautiful. There are lots of different shapes the icebergs can take. They're continually morphing as they melt and they roll over in the ocean. And they, they almost look like diamonds floating through the water, giant diamonds, you know, that you can't help but be mesmerized by. And uh, in some of the pictures I've seen, you know, it, it gives you a sense of the scale. These, these things can be huge, can't they? Yeah, so the largest icebergs can be over a mile. Those often come from Antarctica. In the northern hemisphere, it's not uncommon to have an iceberg that's 2,000 feet, so, you know, bigger than the Empire State Building, just floating in the North Atlantic. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and you got to go see some of them up close, right, by, by ship? What was that first experience like? Yeah, that's right. So the first iceberg I saw, I was dumbstruck, you know, to to realize that you're only seeing a fraction of it, you know, above the waterline, and it's towering over you. Your mind starts to think about, 
how much is under the surface, and then you realize just how big these are. Um, so my my first encounters with icebergs was as a tourist, and I was completely enchanted. And then as I traveled more through Canada and Greenland and Norway, I began to see icebergs a little bit differently. And uh, returning to the freshwater aspect, and uh, that th is interesting to think that many people don't know that icebergs are, are freshwater. And it was like Captain Cook, wasn't it? James Cook back back in the 1700s when he was doing his voyages of discovery that, you know, first kind of tapped into using icebergs for a freshwater supply. And people were really surprised at that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Western Europeans thought consuming ice was dangerous, that you would get goiters that would be bad for your health. So James Cook, as he was traveling around the world, ran out of water. So he decided, let's go for it. Let's try to capture an iceberg and melt it and see what happens. And he was actually awarded the Copley Prize for this discovery that icebergs might be able to preserve mariner health if you can just get them and melt them. Yeah, because it's pristine water, isn't it? It's not, you know, it's water that froze before we started messing with it. Yeah, exactly. In a way, our planet has done this incredible thing for us. We've been, you know, for the past couple of centuries, just destroying the planet with human-made pollution. And before we could do that, uh, these ice caps and glaciers were formed without any human interference. So it's some of the most pristine freshwater we have on Earth. Well, let's talk about the the interesting people and plans to try to harvest some of this water. And there's so many complex issues involved, in it, which is one of the things I found uh, really interesting about your book. And, like, and I have to be honest, like when I first saw it, I thought, oh, chasing icebergs, you know, towing icebergs around. I remember hearing about that when I was a kid. That, that sounds silly. And then when I started reading your book, I went, oh, this is actually really interesting and could be vitally important going forward. So um, thanks for educating me about that. And one of the reasons I think people should read this book. But uh, let's get into uh, the the cold rush. There are people out there who want to go harvest this ice, and they and they need it, like in places like South Africa. Yeah, that's right. So we're we're really standing on the threshold of what could be a global, you know, cold rush, as you've said, for this untapped resource. And there there are a variety of different stakeholders and a number of people going after this. And I, I'm I'm glad you said that you know you see icebergs as a potential solution or this could be a solution because one of one of the things I'm hoping in my book is that we stop treating this as a joke. And I realize you know it it sounds absurd and it sounds funny, but it's not going to be a solution to some of the problems created by climate change unless we stop thinking about this as a joke and start thinking about the real possibilities. And luckily, yeah. we we have a handful of folks who have been trying that. Let's talk about some of those folks. Um, one of the ones that I found particularly interesting is a, a, a pretty amazing character by the name of Nick Sloan, uh, also known as the Maritime Indiana Jones. Tell us about him. Nick's amazing. I, he, he's capable of things that I, I won't even dream about. I'm too cowardly, you know, jumping from a helicopter onto a burning ship to rescue it. You know, I, I don't even want to imagine that. Um, but he's spent a lifetime salvaging wrecked ships. And he lives in Cape Town, and he's looking for solutions to the water crisis there. And with his expertise and his team of scientists, he's decided going after icebergs is the best solution. For context, a 2,000-foot-long iceberg that's like 650 feet thick at the time of capture would be able to supply Cape Town water for an entire year. Wow. 
And, you know, that sounds fabulous, but of course, it's, there are all kinds of issues and problems with that. Um, what, what are some of the, talk about some of the physical problems with towing icebergs, getting an iceberg from a place where it's, it's supposed to be to a place where naturally mm-hmm. it wouldn't be, but where they need the water. Uh, let's talk about some of the problems involved in that, just with the basic physics of, you know, how do you, how do you keep it from melting before you get there? Yeah, that's right. Well, I wouldn't recommend that people without the training try to tow icebergs. Um, and having having tried myself in Greenland to harvest icebergs, I found the best, best method for me is wait for the iceberg to wash up on the beach. And then I'm willing to do it. Um, because you're right, it's there's a lot of technical issues and there's a lot of physics to overcome. You know, the primary problem being that icebergs melt. And as you're dragging them into warmer water and water with waves through the ocean very slowly, they're going to break down really quickly and they're going to roll over and potentially escape whatever net or rope you might have them in. And what what are like where are we at so far with the ability to tow icebergs? What 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 can we do right now? Where are we at? Like what's the furthest icebergs have been towed? Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I want to start by saying we're not in the 1970s anymore. And this science fiction technology is real now in the year 2023, that there are people harvesting icebergs and towing them short distances. So in the Arctic, people have gone several miles. And it's not uncommon for oil companies to hire iceberg wranglers and iceberg cowboys to nudge icebergs out of the way or wrap them with ropes and tow them in different directions, even you know across currents if they need to. So the, the technical issues around how do you capture an iceberg have been solved. Now it's just a matter of at what distance can we do it. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Matthew Burkhold, author of Chasing Icebergs, How Frozen Fresh Water Can Save the Planet. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation with Matthew Burkhold, author of the new book, Chasing Icebergs, How Frozen Fresh Water Can Save the Planet. And can you just kind of go through the, like, the, the nuts and bolts of how do you, you know, it's not like you can't just throw a rope around it with your Evinrude and, you know, start to go. <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about capturing and towing an iceberg? What, what, kind, of, what kind of ships and equipment do you need to do that? And what, what do we have uh, that we can use that for now? Yeah, that's right. So all of the technology already exists. Uh, So you can use a regular tugboat or depending on what kind of iceberg, two tugboats, and you drop a rope into the water and you slowly go around the iceberg and tie it up with a rope. And it's a bit like pulling a tree trunk from the ground. You don't pull it from the top. You go as low as possible because you want to avoid the iceberg rolling over. This sounds like the iceberg rodeo. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in in Newfoundland and Canada, they do call themselves iceberg cowboys. There are a number of businesses that pay for iceberg water. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, And who are some of the major players that are, you know, interested in doing this? Yeah, so we have three main groups that are after large scale iceberg towing. In addition to those groups, I want to say we have uh, smaller producers 
of fine iceberg water out of Norway and smaller products in Canada, you know, whether it's makeup or wine or vodka or beer that also rely on iceberg water. But there are three main players when it comes to harvesting icebergs and towing them across the oceans. One is in Berlin called Polewater. We have the Southern Iceberg Project, which is Nick Sloan in South Africa. And then we have El Shashi's Iceberg Project in uh, Fujaira and UAE. In the United Arab Emirates. I, that's interesting. Um, talk about three disparate groups. And do they have different approaches? They, they all have different business models and different plans for what they would do with the water. All of their strategies share a similar approach, which is to go after Antarctic icebergs and rely on ocean currents to do as much of the work as possible. So the, the idea is to tow the iceberg a short distance into the southern circumpolar current, and then let nature do the work, take the iceberg on its natural course, and then when it's in the right location, recapture the iceberg with those ropes, and then tug it a little bit further into another current to move north. I was just thinking about a bit about the, the hydrodynamics of this too. It's like, I wonder if they try to select icebergs that are, you know, excuse the expression, ship shape. Yeah, exactly. Right. And this this is one of the advantages of all the work that the International Ice Patrol has done. They've done a lot of studying of how do icebergs break apart? What are the most stable forms of icebergs? And they have satellite technology and algorithms to help us understand where are icebergs located and where are they already going to go? So we already have that technology, too, to figure out which icebergs should we be going after if we want to drag them far distances. And for each of these groups, what are what are their aims? Are they like you know you mentioned Nick Sloan? Uh, he's trying to bring water to uh, to Cape Town in South Africa, where they're desperately needed. Are they all out there trying to bring water for altruistic purposes, or is this you know are some of them just purely profit motivated? What's going on there? It might depend a little bit on your definition of altruism. So Nick Sloan is hoping to drag an iceberg to Cape Town and to sell it to the city at a good rate because they're in need of water. The group out of Berlin, Polewater, their idea is to harvest an iceberg, sell some of the water as bottled drinking water to raise more funds and then give away the rest of the water to municipalities that need it in an emergency situation or sell it to them at a fair rate. And the plan out of United Arab Emirates is to drag it, the iceberg to the Middle East to supply water to constituents there and also act as a tourist attraction to see an iceberg in a sunny desert. The, oh, ooh, wow. Uh, okay, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting right there. An iceberg in the desert. Uh, that would be That would be novel. You know, one lesson from the Titanic is that Human hubris ends up punishing us, and we shouldn't pursue this. But this this technology is definitely capable of achieving this. So I think the question we ought to be asking is, what do we want this future world to look like where we're harvesting icebergs? Yeah, let's get into that a bit, because I, I can I can hear the uh, the minds of many of our listeners out there who are environmentally conscious wondering, like, what are the environmental impacts of, you know, dragging icebergs around like this? Are, has that been addressed? That, that's a great question, and it's actually a really difficult one to answer since there's been insufficient funding for scientific research into this area. 
because we tend to think about iceberg towing as a joke, it's really high hanging fruit for scientists to pursue that research. They have no incentive to do it if they're going to be laughed out. And some of the glaciologists working on iceberg towing I've talked to have actually said it's been difficult to get peer reviewers to look at their papers because no one wants to put their name on this because they're afraid they're either going to sound uh, unbelievable or they're going to sign on to something that might not actually happen. So we have to speculate a little bit about the environmental consequences, but this is where having several years to research this book meant I got to talk to a lot of really smart scientists to kind of put together that picture of what might happen to our planet if we begin this process. Oh, and I really enjoyed that section of the book, especially, you know, your admiration for um, Dr. Ellen Stone Mosley Thompson. Um, tell us about her. She's amazing. She's incredible. If anyone listening is making a movie, contact her for her life rights. You know, she's she's been all over the planet. She created this new field of paleoclimatology that is understanding the past climates by looking at ice cores. And she's just one of the most vibrant and erudite people I've had the pleasure of chatting with. And what is what's her take on all, all of this when you talk to her? <laughs> Ellen always cautious me, tell people I'm skeptical, right? Which I, which I think is probably the right scientific approach here. She's skeptical about icebergs making it to their destination. She's skeptical about what the consequences might be. But Ellen also helped me identify big thinkers, that is, scientists who are willing to take risks and think about what might happen if we could actually achieve this. So Ellen does see some hope in this project too, but her advice is to go slow and see what happens to the planet before we have hundreds of people chasing after icebergs. She's definitely a real-life hero, and I like the way you portrayed her in your book. Oh, that's very nice. And I, I should say, I think I ended up cutting this from the, the final version of the book, but she's one of the first women to go to Antarctica as part of a scientific research team. Um, and previously, no women were allowed to join U.S. teams doing research in Antarctica. And one of the reasons given informally was that there were no hairdressers in Antarctica. You've got to be kidding. So this is a brilliant woman who had to put up with just a terrible misogynistic atmosphere. And, you know, she stuck with it and showed everyone the value of making space for all people to do this sort of research. And you bring up Antarctica, and that's an interesting uh, uh, thing, to, entity to think about, because it's one of the only places on Earth that's, you know, governed really by treaty. It doesn't belong to anyone. Um, so that brings up a lot of the interesting legal aspects here. And that, uh, and you're, you have a background in law, correct? That's right. I'm actually teaching property law this semester. Oh, yeah. So perfect. I'm, I found some interesting things in your book about uh, what are the legalities of going out and capturing icebergs, you know, because there's so, so much involved with that. One, My favorite part, though, is uh, you use the very complex legal terms that I had to look up called finders keepers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the finders keepers, losers weepers. That that's basically the law of icebergs if they hit international waters. So you know, I, I'm doing two things in my book which seem to be in contrast, which is to encourage people to stop thinking about iceberg towing as science fiction, actually go out and do it. And at the same time, I'm trying to pump the brakes and saying go out and do it, but do it in a responsible way. Yeah. 
And there's there's definitely a lot of this resource out there. Um, there's thousands and thousands of these icebergs that calve annually, right? So there's it's not like you know if you drag a few icebergs, you're, you're going to put a huge dent in the you know the global iceberg uh, supply. That, that's exactly right, and you know I think. Uh, many of us in the United States tend to think about icebergs as these ephemeral jewels floating in the ocean, and they're special, and they're mystical. And I describe them as diamonds myself. In reality, icebergs are a dime a dozen, right? And all it takes is one trip to Greenland, you know, which I, I've been lucky enough to go to, and I realize a lot of people haven't been. But when once you're in the Arctic, you realize icebergs are a bit like dandelions. They might be beautiful, but they're ubiquitous. And um, another term that I was familiar with, but uh, you know, vaguely familiar with that you explained is flotsam and jetsam. Could you tell us about that and how that relates to icebergs? Yeah, that's right. So there are a couple of models for how we might think about icebergs, because right now they're race nullius, which means that icebergs are nobody's thing once they're in international waters. And we we have a couple of models in international law for how we think about race nullius, that is objects that belong to no one. And that includes flotsam and jetsam, you know, properties that have been thrown overboard or washed overboard on a ship in a storm, then anyone can collect them to use them under international law. And let's talk about the law of the high seas, because uh, what, what exactly is, is the governance out there, you know, when, once you are in international waters? Yeah, so the international community has come together to pass the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, so UN close, and this this treaty formalizes customary law that nations follow in the high seas. So the U.S. is actually not a, a party to this agreement, meaning the U.S. won't recognize these laws, but because it's a codification of custom, the U.S. does in fact follow these laws and is in compliance with them. Uh, and uh, when when we talk about icebergs in international waters, that's that's one aspect. But then, you know, what happens if you've got icebergs and they, like, say, flow from Greenland to Canada and cross cross borders? Because you know that what is it, two hundred mile limit offshore that belongs to that country? What are some of those aspects of this legality? Yeah, that's exactly right. So jumping back to how I got interested in icebergs. You know, I was enjoying this drink in Newfoundland, and I asked the bartender, how did you get this iceberg ice? And he said, well, I jumped on my jet ski, and I scooped up the iceberg, and I brought it back to the bar. And I, I was so surprised that he could go do this with a resource, resource that's as valuable as freshwater. But it goes to your point, once an iceberg is in territorial waters, it's up to that country to decide who gets to do what with the iceberg. Icebergs are a little bit tricky as a resource, though, because they move. So one iceberg might be calved in Greenland, float through Canadian waters, float through U.S. waters, and then go into the international seas. So who does that iceberg belong to? Is it Greenland? Is it Canada? Or is it all of us? Because it'll eventually end in the high seas. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, and I was just thinking about you. I was thinking, what if, what if in ten years Matthew is like making his living as a the dean of iceberg law? <laughs> yeah, well, I, so that's what my book is advocating. We need people to start developing this law before we have a race for this resource. Because right now it's first come, first serve in the high seas on icebergs. And we know 
based on history, when a resource is up for grabs, it tends to end up in the hands of wealthy individuals and large corporations. Yeah. And if we want to use icebergs to solve the water crisis or help solve it, then we need to prevent that from happening. Yeah, and we've observed that here in Northern California with, you know, large corporations coming in to uh, take water from um, the springs at Mount Shasta, for example, you know, to, to bottle and sell. So it makes you wonder if some of those big players like Coca-Cola, Nestle, you know, people like that, what happens when they decide this is a money-making proposition? Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it, it tells you something about you that you suggested I would be dean of iceberg law because other people I talked to about this project say, you're going to be so rich. You're going to help corporations capture icebergs. And I have to remind them, no, no, no. That's what I'm trying to avoid here. Yeah, you'll be you'll be the heroic guy in court that, you know, stops them, stops the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, I don't I don't think corporations are necessarily the bad guy, but if profits your main motive, there's an established market for iceberg water. Um, it tends to operate on the premise of exclusivity. So you wouldn't want to sell a lot of it. But, you know, there's currently iceberg water that's for sale for $150 a bottle. Whoa. And can you, re you know, do they do blind taste tests where, you know, it's like, okay, here's some really good spring water and here's iceberg water. Can Can people actually tell the difference? Uh, I, well, I'll tell you, I can tell the difference. Yeah. Iceberg water is extremely unique tasting. Again, speaking from my, you know, American Midwestern perspective, that's not how my tap water tastes because iceberg water has almost no minerality to uh. it. So it, it tastes different. The mouthfeel is really different. And one of, one of the fun things writing this book was learning about the water, the, the world of high-end water and water competitions. I, d I didn't know that you could subject water to taste tests. So they, they have like medals like they do in, in wine competitions for water? Yeah, that's exactly right. And they're actually water sommeliers. Oh, no. Really? Who judge water. So may maybe this will be my retirement plan. If you're just joining us, our guest is Ohio State Law and Environmental Humanities Professor Matthew Burkhold, and we're talking about the possibility of harvesting icebergs for fresh water. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with Matthew Burkhold, author of the new book, Chasing Icebergs, How Frozen Fresh Water Can Save the Planet. Are there some innovative ideas for how to actually capture the, some of the water before you, you lose it to melt? Yeah, so there are a couple of strategies, right? So you have that energy exchange between the colder iceberg and the warmer ocean water, plus the sun beating down and the waves are going to erode to the iceberg too. So one idea is heat-insulated iceberg reservoirs, right? So you kind of wrapped the iceberg up to try to protect it against these elements. Um, so El Shashi just patented these reservoirs uh, in 2022. Other businesses or other of these entrepreneurs have the idea to just get an iceberg big enough, it doesn't matter if you lose 50% of it in transit. It's still going to be big enough to supply a year's worth of water once it arrives on destination. So for those folks, the, the, the question isn't how do you protect an iceberg from melting, it's 
how do you quickly collect all the water as it's melting? And of course, it's very it's very pure water, isn't it? So you don't have to do a huge amount of filtration and purifying. Is that is that an issue? Yeah, that's right. So the idea would be as it's melting, do some tests on it, right? But in theory, you wouldn't have to clean the water up. So you could just collect it into bags. So the pole water team out of Berlin, Germany, has designed these novel water bags to catch the meltwater. And then their idea is to you move the water bags around the globe rather than move the iceberg around the globe. So harvest the iceberg at a convenient spot and then have these mobile water bags. Like what, fill tankers with water bags and then ship them where they need or where they're more needed? Yeah, something like that. So, you know, they're, they're not tankers. And again, the, the technology is just astounding what they've developed to be environmentally friendly and have, you know, as small of a carbon footprint as possible. But yeah, that that's the idea. Yeah, that's So, you know, their, their idea is if there's an earthquake, you know, in the Caribbean, then have one of these water bags towed, you know, on a, you know, behind a ship to, you know, the Caribbean, and then use the water there. How, how big are they? Uh, they're, they're really, they're really sizable. Um, so in my book, I've included some pictures, but you know, it's, it's um, proprietary right now. You know, they're, they're trying to get people to invest in this so they can mm-hmm. start doing this. Yeah. And again, there, we have, we have some competitors, you know, they're not directly in competition because there are enough icebergs, but they all have slightly different visions of who should benefit from this water. And who, who, who should benefit from this water from your point of view? Yeah, so that's something I really struggled with. So in a lot of my academic work, I advocate for indigenous rights. And particularly in the Greenlandic context, uh, letting Greenlanders define what they want to do with their natural resources is especially important because they're the custodians of this resource. They've kept it clean and safe. And they're still, you know, subjected to Danish rule. They they're not completely independent. So letting Greenlanders gain money by, say, selling icebergs would be in line with my goals around indigenous rights. Letting Greenland sell icebergs, though, means icebergs might go to Americans who can pay for icebergs better than, say, South Africans can. So it's a little bit of a balance of what rights are you trying to protect and who are you trying to support when you think about who owns icebergs. And do you do you imagine that, you know, like 50 years from now, this could very possibly be a big deal? Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, I, you know, I, I'm prepared to sound like the academic quack, you know, who's saying, be ready for a future where there are icebergs. Um, but I do think it's finally time to ring that alarm bell. When they when they did it in the 1970s, it was too early. But it's it's clear to me now that the technology exists. All we need is a shift in our cultural mindset around how we think about icebergs to have this happen. So I think we need to be ready, both in terms of environmental regulations and have legal questions answered about who owns this, who gets to use icebergs, how many, and how do we want to distribute this resource? Yeah, and it's interesting to think about Greenland and and Antarctica, um, be, because these these ice resources, you know, are are melting at a higher rate because of planetary warming. You know, we've got a warming planet due to climate change. The oceans are literally melting Greenland, which makes you also wonder, like, well, you know, the the industrial societies are responsible for creating this situation, um, and yet Greenland, you know, is the ones losing their ice. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and the other thing I think about with harvesting icebergs is there would be a tragic irony if icebergs were meant to be a solution to the water crisis, you know, exacerbated by climate change, and it actually contributed to climate change, right? So we need to make sure that we're sustainably harvesting icebergs and not leaving too big of carbon footprints behind as we're doing. Otherwise, everyone's going to suffer, you know, especially people in the polar regions. And uh, as you've gone through your journey of, of exploring the, the science and legality behind icebergs and the political and business issues, um, what, what were some of the things along the way that surprised you the most that were kind of like aha moments for you? I'd say one of the first aha moments was my, my own personal shift from thinking about icebergs as special to really boring. And that doesn't mean they're not beautiful, but... When, once I stopped thinking about icebergs as special, it made it more feasible to invest in bringing icebergs to the people who need it most. If we continue to think about icebergs as something beautiful and mystical, then it, it would be really hard to convince governments to use icebergs for impoverished people or people dying of thirst because it, it feels like a luxury. And why why would you you know expend that much energy on a luxury for impoverished peoples so i think shifting that mindset would be important for everyone and it's you know it's an evolution i underwent just by traveling and seeing so many icebergs and it's it's interesting to think about um what icebergs actually are what ice is and getting back to the legalities of it uh you discuss in your book a bit about this like you you can compare them to Anadromous fish, for example, you know, as a resource uh, that they are, in a sense, you know, renewable. Uh, make that comparison for how is an iceberg like salmon? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So you're you're asking a lawyer's question, which is to think in analogies. So what can we learn by studying other resources and the legal rules that apply to them? So is an iceberg like a salmon? Is it like a cloud? Is it like a mineral? Is it like oil? So in many ways. Icebergs operate like a salmon. They're born inland and they migrate out into the ocean. So what we might do is decide to treat icebergs that way and tell countries you own an iceberg when it's in your water and you have to cooperate with the other people who also rely on that resource. Like we've done in the case of salmon, we have bilateral fishing agreements between Canada and the United States, for instance. Yeah. And and they can be definitely viewed as a mineral because ice, you know, technically is a mineral. It meets all the qualifications. It's it's inorganic, which means it's not made of anything alive. Uh, it's a solid because it's frozen. It's got a crystal structure. Ice has its crystalline structure. Uh, has a definite chemical composition. It's got a formula H two O. So it you know in it it meets all those criteria. It's it's a mineral by definition that way. That, that's exactly right. And when I when I realized that too, I thought I had solved everything. We'll just treat icebergs like minerals. Uh, the difference for me is icebergs move. They move and they melt in a way most minerals don't. Mm -hmm. So if we, we want to apply the same policies, they might become incoherent when we start applying them to icebergs. In the case of international law, the Antarctic Treaty System has also made a special note that we're not going to treat icebergs as minerals. But yeah, I, I thought th this for sure was going to be the answer. Have, have you gotten really good at your iceberg elevator speech after all this, where, you know, you have to explain to somebody fairly briefly, you know, why, why you wrote a book about this and why icebergs are important? 
uh, I, I've gotten good, I hope, at giving people a little bit of optimism when we think about climate change and one potential solution to one of the symptoms of climate change. I've gotten very bad at an iceberg pitch because I'm usually talking about the Titanic. <laughs> well, that's where most people's minds definitely go. At, at the end of it for you, uh, what's your big biggest takeaway about uh, what you've learned in researching and writing this book? Yeah, I think that we tend to think about icebergs the way we see them in the world, right? Where we're really only seeing the glistening surface and it's a small fraction of what icebergs actually contain in terms of their cultural significance. You know, it's it's not just the Titanic, but they've been woven into our culture in myriad ways and into the way we think about the law and the way we think about resources and how we relate with each other because icebergs move between a lot of us. So, you know, the, the goal of the book, my big takeaway is icebergs are far more complex than most of us realize. And that complexity can be overwhelming, but therein also lies a lot of promise. If we can tackle this complexity in the right way, we might actually have a solution to a really deadly problem. Well, Matthew Burkle, the author of Chasing Icebergs, How Frozen Fresh Water Can Save the Planet, uh, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this fascinating subject that used to be, you know, fantasy, science fiction, you know, a ha-ha dream to something that, you know, literally could uh, help the water needs of people around the world. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks again to our guest, Matthew Burkhold from The Ohio State University. You can find his new book, Chasing Icebergs, at most major booksellers or order them at your locally owned bookstore. And now it's time for one of our teachable moments when, from time to time on this program, uh, Matt Fiddler asks a question that he's been pondering and I do my best to answer them. Matt, what do you got for me today? Hey, Dave. Um, yeah. So, well, we've been doing all these series about uh, about water mm. and how important it is to, you know, just <laughs> the life in general and, you know, and the ecosystems around us. And of course, you know, we're in California, so water is always an issue. But uh, since that's such a huge topic and today we're talking about icebergs on our show, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about ice. Ice and water. OK, good. What, what would you like to know? So this may sound really basic, but why exactly does ice float? Why do we have icebergs? Yeah, you know, that's one of those questions that sounds very simple and you probably have some kind of understanding of it, but it's actually a fascinating property of water. So let's just start out with some, some basics about the water molecule itself. It's an oxygen uh, bonded to two hydrogens, you know, the famous H2O. So, but if you look at the shape of a water molecule, it's bent. So the, the two hydrogens, which are much smaller, kind of look like the ears on Mickey Mouse, where the oxygen is Mickey's head and the hydrogens are his ears. So that's the shape of a water molecule. Now, what's interesting about that is it makes water a polar molecule. In other words, it's got a kind of a negative side, which is the oxygen side, and a kind of positive side, which is the hydrogen side. Now, those hydrogens can do something called hydrogen bonding. And so in liquid water, they will form bonds with other water molecules. The hydrogens will kind of get attracted to the oxygens because, you know, positive attracts to negative, unlike charges attract. And that kind of goes on continuously where those bonds are forming and breaking just continuously in the liquid state. 
Now, what's interesting is that when you start to get water colder and colder and colder, those bonds become uh, formed and they're more permanent, but they also space a little farther apart. And then what magically happens is it starts to form a crystal, a crystal lattice. They form little hexagons. So you start to form a crystal structure. And because the crystal structure has space in it, now the water in its solid form, what we call ice, is now less dense. And we should probably, you know, go over what density actually means. It just means mass, you know, how much stuff there is, how many actual molecules are there, divided by the volume, the space it takes up. So now it's about 8.3% less dense than it was as a liquid, which is unusual. Most substances, when they go from a liquid to a solid, are more dense, and they would sink. But ice is very different, so it's less dense than the liquid water, so it floats, just like you know, any object that's less dense than water will float in it. Uh, so it, that's how like a giant aircraft carrier can float. Well, it's got so much space in it, you know, it's got so much volume, even though it's massive, it's able to float. So that's why uh, ice floats on the top of water. And it, it, it's very important for life on Earth. If you think about a lake, for example, it freezes not from the bottom up, which would basically kill all the life in the lake and like a mountain lake, but it freezes at the top layer first. And so the water below is insulated from the cold and, and it tends to stay liquid all winter. So the fish and things can live in there. They're not frozen to death. So it's a, it's a wonderful property of water and it's also why icebergs float. Interesting. Okay. And so the other thing that we learned in this uh, interview was that um, icebergs are made of fresh water. And I was always one, and I wondered if, is that always, or is that just, you know, when it falls off a glacier? Oh, that's a good question, Matt. That's, and, and it's interesting. Um, and this is, an, this is a fun experiment you could do at home, especially if you got kids. Uh, you can take, make, a, make some seawater, which is really easy to do. Just, you know, get a pan, uh, get a few spoons of salt, dissolve a lot of salt in the water, make salt water. Okay, you got seawater there. Then go put it basically in a container and go freeze it. And then after you're done... Uh, chip away at that ice and you will f find something very interesting that it's actually not salt water anymore. The, the salt crystals have been basically forced out by the forming of those crystals. And what you're going to have is fresh water, fresh water ice that you formed from seawater, your salt water. So it, all of all of the ice in the ocean, even if it's formed in you know in the sea, that that's basically fresh water. I mean, there there's some small amounts of salt particles that are trapped in the pore spaces and things like that, but the glaciers you know that calve and form the big icebergs from Greenland and stuff that's pure fresh water. But even the sea ice, the pack ice, is fresh water. It has a little more salt in it, but it's not, not as salty as the ocean. That's another fascinating aspect of the freezing of water and some of its amazing properties. Cool. Well, thanks for um, enlightening me about some of these unusual properties of ice. Well, no problem, Matt. It's always it's always fun to answer your questions as best I can. We could go into more about water in the future. I think that would be that would be fun. Blue 
Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.